Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up with a new step this evening, uh, step number nine on the remembrance of wrongs. And if you remember, this uh, follows the step on anger that we've been talking about for the last few weeks and, uh, and is even seen as an offspring of anger. And this is why John... Uh, turns his attention to it now. And I think in the spiritual life, this gives us more trouble than perhaps we, uh, you know, give it attention. That uh, it's something, you know, once we have a memory uh, in our minds about a past wrong done to us or insult or something painful, it's very difficult then to uh, be able to move forward and not cling to the feelings of anger or cling to the, the woundedness to the extent that we ruminate on it and it occupies our minds and our hearts. And, uh, and so John is going to take it, us through this and show it's how, it, how, how it manifests itself, uh, but also some of the ways that we might be able to remedy it over the course of time. And so again, we're on page 125. Uh, halfway down the page, step number nine. The holy virtues are like Jacob's ladder, and the unholy vices are like the chains that fell from the chief apostle Peter. For the virtues leading from one to another bear him who chooses them up to heaven, but the vices by their nature beget and stifle one another. And as we have just heard, senseless anger calling remembrance of wrongs its own offspring. It is appropriate that we should now say something about this. Remembrance of wrongs is the consummation of anger, the keeper of sins, hatred of righteousness, ruin of virtues, poison of the soul, worm of the mind, shame of prayer, cessation of supplication, estrangement of love, a nail struck in the soul, pleasureless feeling cherished in the sweetness of bitterness, continuous sin, unsleeping transgression, and hourly malice. Wow. So as always, John begins um, with a definition of a particular virtue or vice. And this is what he does with remembrance of wrongs. And a striking imagery that he uses here and we could probably spend the whole night, I, th I think, simply on, on this one paragraph, uh, unpacking the, the labels that he gives to the remembrance of wrongs, consummation of anger. And so it's the, the full fruit, if you will, of anger unattended to over the course of time. And so it reaches deep within us at this point. And he says it becomes the keeper of sins and almost the, the guardian and protector of them. Like we hold the sins of others away in a little vault and uh, in order that we might bring them out when uh, we have interaction with them or something that irritates us in regards to them. Hatred of righteousness. It's a harder one uh, because... Um, you know, it's telling us something more about our relationship with God and being in a right relationship with God. If what has been revealed to us about the nature of the love of the kingdom, the forgiveness, the mercy of God, and the willingness to overlook our sin 
and to, to offer us constant forgiveness, then in so many ways we are estranging ourselves from that reality when we cling to the memory of other sins against us. And so this is something that we have to struggle with. And as we know, to uh, heal memory uh, is a very difficult thing. And the depth of the prayer and the depth of attentiveness uh, to what's going on in one's mind and heart, the thoughts, as well as the other disciplines that we embrace has to be great uh, in order that the grace of God might bring healing on that deep of a level, even where it is unconscious for us. The ruin of virtues, poison of the soul, worm of the mind. It's a powerful image. So even when we try to move away from it, it is something that burrows ever deeper within the, the, the mind. And the longer that we leave it unattended, the, the deeper it goes. And the harder it is then to root it out. Um, shame of prayer. So to call out to God, especially uh, using and making use of the Jesus prayer, as the fathers teach us, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, to call to him at every moment for his mercy and forgiveness, uh, then makes prayer itself uh, a source of shame for us. How is it that we can be crying out for this when uh, constantly, when we hold on to with a vengeance, uh, our remembrance of other people's wrongs. Uh, cessation of supplication, uh, very similar here. It's the end of often our calling out to God for particular needs that we have for ourselves or others. Estrangement of love, nail struck in the soul. And so it is a kind of uh, self-inflicted wound, if you will, that our holding on, our clinging on to a, a memory does more harm to us. It poisons the soul. It afflicts us. It uh, brings pain to our soul. Pleasureless feeling cherished in the sweetness of bitterness, or feeling cherished in the sweetness of bitterness. Uh, this is an interesting one. A kind of morbid delight in it, that there is uh, a kind of sweetness that we can find when we give ourselves over uh, to this. Uh, you know, um, kind of anger towards others that is not bound in any kind of way when we give free reign to it. And, uh, and so when it's not reined in and we find ourselves drawn deeper into it, there is a kind of sick sweetness about that. Uh, it's similar to uh, the kind of morbid delight that people often will experience at the falls of others when we see them fall from grace and uh, we can take a kind of sick pleasure in that. And similarly here, I think with our remembrance of other, other people's wrongs, we can begin to find that feeling of anger and aggression directed towards another uh, as uh, offering us a kind of sweetness that it feels like a righteous anger to us because it's rooted in a particular reality that somebody has treated us poorly or done us wrong. And so again, to give free reign to, to, to this uh, very powerful feeling is also to take some pleasure in it, even though it's something that is negative from our perspective. Uh, satisfying aggression, if we look at our society and culture, can be a very satisfying thing. 
you know, watch a group of, of people sitting in a room watching a football game and somebody gets nailed uh, on the field and everybody jumps up and cheers, you know, as though it's, you know, this great thing. And uh, so similarly, you know, we can take this kind of delight in uh, the things that are, are negative or aggress aggressive, uh, even our own aggression. Continuous sin, such a powerful uh, element of this definition that even when we are <laughs> when we are not conscious of it, excuse me, when we're not conscious of it, it still remains within our hearts and our minds and affects our behavior. And uh, so we can avoid contact with individuals. We can treat them uh, in a kind of passive aggressive way, uh, even without realizing it, uh, because we, we have this, as it were, worm of the mind guiding us. Unsleeping transgression. So again, very, very similar that this is something that never rests within us because it's in our mind, if it's in our unconscious mind and imagination and memory, then it even follow, follows us into sleep and can manifest itself in and through our dreams uh, as well. You know, the mind in that sense never, never rests. And then hourly malice, uh, as the remembrance of death uh, John tells us, brings us a kind of freedom and helps to turn us away from sin. Our remembrance of the wrongs of others, then he tells us, becomes an hourly malice. We're drawn deeper and deeper into a lack of freedom from it. Uh, so just the opposite of what we would find in something like the remembrance of death. So this, you know, would make a very good meditation, you know, cer certainly for uh, uh, a group, but uh, as we enter into Lent, and if this is a particular struggle that we have, I think to read this paragraph, or maybe even the whole step daily throughout the course of, of Lent, uh, because it is such a difficult thing for us. And it's and not one of us here is beyond this struggle. I think if we live our life and we engage other human beings, we are going to know uh, wounds, we're going to experience wounds, and some of them very deep, and that will carry along with us. Antony writes, another kind of remembering wrongs is to trod the path of bad example someone, hold on for a second there, a path, bad example someone has set, examples hearing, cursing, and then carrying on that tradition instead of cutting it off or doing violence because someone else did violence to you, a chain of abuse. Absolutely, you know, the there is this kind of, uh, we're going to move into sins of speech. And one is uh, storytelling, that even speaking of what others have done, wrongs that others have done, and telling stories about it, uh, sort of perpetuates it in the minds of others and uh, detracts from uh, our evaluation of other individuals. And so there are so many ways that this could spread out and affect our spiritual life and our relations with others. Uh, Eric writes, my translation titles this section on malice. Right, if you look in the footnote of our uh, book, it's, it could be resentment, malice, rancor, or spite. And each of those sort of captures an element 
of this, which he then I think defines very well in this first paragraph. Your translation refers, let's see, to hourly malice. Mine says rancor by the hour. Can you elaborate on the relationship between malice and remembrance of wrongs? Well, malice often carries within it, I think, this sense of desiring to harm the other, even if it is through our words, telling them exactly what we think of them for what they've done. And if you remember, John talks about giving somebody a good scrubbing, you know, to really let them have it for what they've done and to expose them. And so there, there can be this kind of malice where we really want to make a person feel as bad as we do. And on, on a psychological, psychological level, in some ways, this is under, uh, understandable that some of the wounds that we experience are so deep that they are beyond words and sometimes beyond this, you know, a sense that we would have that it would even be possible to talk about it fully with another, that the only way for them to understand is to make them feel the way that we feel. And so to treat them in the same way or even worse. And uh, so psychologically, emotionally, you know, there's so many different ways. I think this is a challenge for us beyond the, the purely spiritual or the ways that this can be used as temptations to draw us deeper and deeper into anger. And you can see why John calls it the consummation of anger, because it, it, it stretches out its tentacles, as it were, uh, to so in so many directions that uh, it could affect the way that we live our our day-to-day -day life. Uh, Bonnie Lewis writes, so I shouldn't be troubled that I can relate so deeply to this step. No, in fact, I'd be surprised if every one of us here uh, didn't relate to this step in a very deep way. And uh, because it is tied uh, to the emotional life, to anger, which is a very powerful thing as we've talked about in the past. And even one of the faculties of the soul that has been given to us to struggle against sin, this aggression uh, that can be used in a very powerful way in the spiritual warfare. Uh, but when directed towards others, it can be uh, incredibly destructive. And especially when it's rooted in something, as I said, that is real and uh, where we have been wounded and that where that memory runs very deep. Uh, it can be something that we struggle with for years and decades of our life and perhaps our whole life that we might have to do battle with this simply that we don't give it free reign in our life and uh, seek to open our minds and our hearts to God in such a way that he can bring healing again to the, those deeper parts of ourselves, our memory. And this is something that's possible by the grace of God. It requires a kind of vulnerability before him, I think, that is unlike perhaps what we're often used to. I think it requires a kind of depth of prayer, uh, a humbling of the mind and body, you know, as we're preparing to enter into Lent, uh, you know, that our prayer can deepen in such a way when it's also strengthened uh, by fasting and where we can stand before God 
uh, humbled in every way and acknowledging our deep need uh, for him and for what he alone can offer us, especially this, this kind of healing. And I think when we begin to go this deep in looking at our, our vices, we realize that it's only by the grace of God and that these are not things that we are going to muscle our way through uh, by simply the strength of our own will or by the power of reason. Uh, I think, you know, when we've been wounded so deeply, it becomes it can become very difficult for us to forgive others. Antony writes again, healing in divine in the divine comedy, Dante is washed in a river of forgetfulness when passing from purgatory to heaven, so he can forget all memory of sin. Yeah, you know, I think when John teaches the remembrance of death in particular, uh, the, the remembrance of the brevity of our own life, uh, that it, in a similar way, it leads to a kind of forgetfulness of these kind of things when we begin to uh, see things in, the right perspective that we are made for something far more to share in the fullness of eternal life and love. And when we see our dignity, our identity, our destiny in Christ, uh, I think even the deepest of wounds uh, can be healed. Uh, in particular, when we, when we give ourselves over to these kinds of thoughts. And, and so, you know, so many of the modern elders I've read recently seem to reiterate the fact that, you know, we're not simply called to stop sinning or certain sinful uh, behaviors, but what our ultimate goal is, is to allow ourselves to be conformed to Christ perfectly by the grace of God, to love in a divine way, to love as God loves, and so, and so be to be so deeply immersed in that relationship with Christ that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. And so what we see when we see him stretched out, pinned to the cross and crying out, you know, forgive them, they know not what they do, that this is the love that we are called to. And to so to have this constantly before the mind's eye and part of our constant meditation is part, I think, of what brings healing of these wounds that are so deep. When we allow the cross and the love of the cross to take deeper and deeper root within our hearts. Uh, some you know, really wonderful writers uh, to read would be uh, St. Paul of the Cross. I've mentioned him here many times before, and, but I, I don't think that he's given enough attention. He's the founder of the Passionist. And uh, his writings are exquisite. There's a little book called Flowers of the Passion. And I can't recommend it highly enough. You can find it online or you can, there's, it's still in print. And there are little meditations that would be satisfying uh, for every day. A few sentences, almost like what we find in the Philokalia. But so beautiful, all focused on how the passion touches various aspects of our life. Okay, so paragraph number three, the dark and hate, this dark and hateful passion 
I mean, the remembrance of wrongs is one of those that are produced but have no offspring. That is why we do not intend to say much about them. So it's an interesting thing, uh, you know, that he call, says it's the consummation of anger, but it also has no offspring. And I think it tells us something about its destructiveness. Once this takes root within us, it can be the ruination of the soul. And so we're really called to battle with this uh, as fully as we can, because if it takes root, uh, it can undermine the, all the virtues that we, we struggle with. And so there's no need for it to produce offspring, offspring because it's uh, accomplished its task. He who has put a stop to anger has also destroyed remembrance of wrongs because childbirth continues only while the father is alive. It's a curious little saying, uh, you know, that this, the, if we put to death anger, or I'm sorry, if we put stop anger, if we're able to uproot this passion, uh, then we're, we are then going to be free of going through uh, sort of the, the pain uh, of this. Uh, as he describes it, a nail stuck in the soul. If we're able to stop anger and uproot it uh, before it reaches this level and uh, colors the soul with such darkness and hatred of others, then we are going to experience a kind of freedom. And so, again, here, I think this is why we begin to see the order that the fathers put things in that uh, to struggle with what gives birth to this. And so if the offspring of anger is the remembrance of wrong, if we're able to uproot anger from the soul, then we become free from this, this deeper kind of affliction. He who has obtained love has banished revenge, but he who nurses enmities stores up for himself untimely labors. I love that phrase, nurses, enmities, uh, because this is exactly what we do. We can take the things that people have done to us and the hard fe harsh feelings that go along with them and nurse them. Uh, uh, we add to the power that they have over us by our ruminating on them. And so as we go over them again and again, they begin to gain strength. Uh, within us uh, and grow and take over the mind and, and the heart, uh, just as a child is nursed and grows. So we nurse things through our, our feelings and our thoughts. And so again, you know, we come back to their use of the uh, unceasing prayer, in particular the Jesus prayer, so that we, we don't precisely do this that our big struggle in the spiritual life is with what they call the logismoi, the thoughts that will pull us and take us where they will and do exactly what he says here, nurse enmity towards others. And so if we are able to redirect the thoughts toward God and uh, redirect the mind and the heart toward God and cleave to him, then these thoughts lose their, their power. 
And when they lose power, then we cease to nurse that anger towards others. And so, you know, the call to unceasing prayer is not figurative. You know, it's not hyperbole. Uh, it's something that we are to strive for on a daily basis. Number six, a banquet of love dispels hatred and sincere gifts soothe a soul. But a heedless banquet is the mother of familiarity and through the window of love, gluttony leaps in. So a banquet of love dispels hatred. When we give ourselves over to loving feelings towards others, and when we uh, act in a loving way towards them, uh, uh, even towards our enemies, this he tells us, uh, gives us gifts that soothe the soul. The more that we are able, even when our hearts might be raging, uh, when we're able to allow ourselves to do something good for someone who we have some animosity towards, who, who, who's done its harm, it's then we begin, our hearts begin to be soothed. But if we have a heedless banquet uh, where we allow ourselves to feast upon these thoughts of anger and uh, of the remembrance of wrongs, uh, this becomes, he says, the mother of familiarity that it leads us to take liberties with others, where we'll be, we will typically be more restrained if we are watchful of our hearts, if we're not feasting on these thoughts of, of, of the wrongs that others have done, then we're not going in our familiarity with them because it's typically those that we know and know well that wound us the most deeply. And, uh, and so, if we are heedless and we're nourishing ourselves on these thoughts, then our familiarity with the others is going to give us a sense of greater freedom to take those opportunities to let loose on them, to express that anger and direct it toward them. And so it can be a, an insidious thing. Through the window of love, gluttony leaps in. So it, what we love, you know, if we are feasting ourselves on love, true love for the other, then what is soothing, what is healing is going to enter into our hearts. But if we allow this love of remembrance of others' wrongs, this kind of morbid uh, delight in them, if we open that window and feed ourselves on that, uh, we're, it's, it's going to be insatiable. John is telling us that once we have the taste for that and uh, once we've gorged ourselves on it, uh, even though we're filled to the gills with it, we're, our minds and our hearts are going to tell us we're still hungry for more. And so hatred will, will feed upon itself uh, in an unending kind of way he's telling us here. And it's a frightening thought. You know, it's, it's like we can never get to a point where we think, oh my gosh, I'm just sick of being angry. Uh, it's in a, in a sense, this is, it's like avarice 
avarice feeds upon itself too. The more we have, the more we tend to want or feel that we need. And here with anger, our hunger for respect, the respect of others or for revenge is something that feeds, you know, feeds upon itself, but also is insatiable. Always wanting more. So we, we can never just give ourselves a little bit of resentment towards others. And sometimes we, you know, when we feel that we're in the right, especially, we, you know, we'll tell, we'll tell others we're, we're just sort of venting and <laughs> to get it off of our minds, off of our, you know, chest. And, you know, on some level that's true, but when we are doing this repeatedly and indiscriminately, you know, with everybody that we meet, perhaps, then uh, again, it's going to take us over swiftly. I've seen hatred break the bond of long-standing fornication and afterwards remembrance of wrongs in an amazing way did not allow the severed union to be renewed. Wonderful sight, a demon curing a demon. Perhaps, but perhaps this is the work not of demons, but of divine providence. So John always has these uh, interesting little ways of looking at things and almost a little bit humorous. He's telling us here that, you know, there can be a relationship that is, you know, an expression of fornication and a kind of enmity can develop in the relationship and break it off. And so it in a strange kind of way, it cures the fornication that's taking place. And it, the, that relationship can be so severed so deeply by the hatred of the other that uh, it doesn't allow the person to enter back into it. And this is why he says, you know, it's a curious thing to see two demons fighting against each other. It's like a dog chasing its tail in some, some strange kind of way. But he says, you know, this is probably more divine providence that God allows something like this emerge in order to free someone from the grip of another passion. Any comments before I move on? Not just about this last one, but of any anything that we've read so far. Yes, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering. Um, thanks. Um, I'm wondering, having kind of joined this later on, I imagine some other people might have too. Um, this is a very general question, though. Mm -hmm. uh, given the progression that's kind of necessarily presented um, in this, is there any caution to be had in trying to live by what we're hearing now uh, without having necessarily read the first parts of the of the latter? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think uh, part of the reason that we approach the text in the way that we do, and even that we, why we provide the podcast, is that we can maintain that progression over time that a person can follow along in the development of the saint's thought and uh, allow the saint to lead us all the way through this progression to the end, because when, you know, he's teaching certain things, it's not obvious where he's leading us at certain points, or it can be so jarring to our sensibilities 
that it can be hard to say, I really don't grasp that, or this is uh, really uncomfortable. And so we have to suspend judgment in order to follow along the thought until uh, he brings us to a, a sort of a place of light where we see it with greater clarity. But I, I think the pace with which we take things is precisely to allow ourselves to sit with these things for a long period of time and to see the connections that are made and, and, uh, and not to rush through it, not to read it as we would read other texts that often he's talking about the deepest and the fathers are talking about the deepest of things that are a part of our, our lives as human beings on both an emotional and spiritual level, the subtlety with which the demons will work on us and tempt us. And there is a distinct progression. Uh, and we see this most of all in the latter of divine ascent, uh, the progression that exists between the, the vices and the virtues and seeing how they're connected uh, and how overcoming one can give one strength in battling the others or giving oneself over to one can weaken a person in the battle with particular vices is important. And, uh, and this isn't to tell a person not to join the group. I would prefer people to join and go back and listen to the podcast. And this is the second or third time, uh, at least the third time I've done the latter in a group. Uh, not all of those have been podcast, uh, and it, this won't be the last time. And I've mentioned in the group before that in the East, often in monasteries, they will read the, the latter every single Lent uh, to immerse themselves over and over again. And each time that I've read through it, I hear and see new things. And in fact, by in, uh, doing this via Zoom, which I would, never would have done in the past, I was always against having groups online. I preferred to have them in person. But having the, the questions, the comments that come up over the course of time broadens the perspective of the whole group and my, my own. Uh, there have been, been times where I've been so struck by something that I will overgeneralize and someone will put forward a question that makes me think about, think about it on a deeper level and say, yes, you're right. I need to step back and not have such a sweeping view of, of what the writer is saying here, uh, uh, simply because I'm taken with the truth of that particular statement. And so we have to be kind of humble and discriminating and discerning in our reading of these texts. And, uh, you know, certainly the tradition is to, to read them with uh, and in the context of spiritual direction uh, because so much of the guidance that is given is about how one prays, how one fasts, uh, you know, what passions one struggles with first or what virtues one would seek to foster. And so not to try to walk this path uh, alone or in isolation is something that's important. Uh, I, you know, I think one of the reasons that I started the, these groups and not to spend too much time with this is precisely because it needs to take place. These have been the most important of spiritual writings throughout the entire spiritual tradition. And to, to simply say they're too complicated or too difficult or dangerous to read is not a good enough response. Uh, 
I think we we live in a day and an age where we have to take responsibility uh, for immersing ourselves in the richness of the spiritual tradition and turn to the to the fathers as our spiritual fathers, our spiritual elders, in order that we might enter into the spiritual battle more fully. And, uh, you know, each generation, I think, faces its own particular challenges. Uh, we have the benefit of living in a generation where we have access to the writings of saints that no other generation uh, had access to. And we've mentioned this before. I mean, we're reading the Evercatinos. Uh, if you're an English speaker and English speaker alone, you know, this is the first time that it was ever, it's been published in English. Same thing with uh, Isaac the Syrian's ascetical homilies. Uh, it's only been in publication for the last 20 years. And the final volume of the Philokalia has just is being published and will uh, be available mid-March. Uh, and so, you know, we live in a wonderful time in that regard, but I think there's a lot of responsibility that's put on our shoulders and on priests and sisters' shoulders as well, or anyone who's responsible, I think, for offering guidance and counsel to others, parents too, to immerse oneself deeply in the study of the fathers, because our whole spiritual tradition is rooted in the ascetical and mystical writings that arise out of the Desert Fathers. And uh, and just in closing there, you know, I'll say, you know, it's often good to remind ourselves that every renewal within the life of the church begins with the fathers. And in a sense, the church is essentially conservative in the sense that we build on the wisdom that is passed on to us. There has to be a kind of holy genius, I think, in every generation that is able to identify the particular needs and struggles that we have. Uh, but we can't avoid uh, do, doing the work. We can't be lazy. And nobody's going to give it to us. You know, we have no Catholic school system to speak of anymore. And, you know, or Catholic families where it's passed down. So we're, we're responsible for our own spiritual uh, development and have to you know, invest ourselves as fully as we can. But your, your point's well taken, you know, that we can't simply take things out of context. We have to read these things very carefully, okay? Carol. How does one speak freely in the context of therapy or spiritual direction while also avoiding the remembrance of wrongs? Well, you know, certainly in, in therapy, it's within a clinical frame or context that is seeking healing. Again, that is not to, to vent or simply give oneself the satisfaction of railing against another individual. The whole reason one is going to therapy is because they are seeking healing. And so laying out these things uh, uh, is directed toward that end. Uh, psychotherapy is something of a, a misnomer, at least in the way that we defined it. It really means healing of the soul. Uh, there's uh, an Eastern Orthodox bishop, uh, Herothios Vlakos, who wrote a book called Orthodox Psychotherapy. And he really does a wonderful job in sort of unpacking uh, 
the death psychology of the early church fathers and that the, there's been a distortion that's taken place in modern psychology not that he doesn't see the benefit of it but we've sort of truncated our view of the human person in the sense that we've set aside the soul the spiritual aspect of who we are made in the image and likeness of god and so without this deep understanding the healing that we seek through psychotherapy secular and modern psychotherapy is only going to be able to take us uh, to uh, a certain level of healing. It's only by the grace of God uh, that we can experience healing on the deepest levels of our beings. So, and I think Daniel had a comment there. The internet for a million different reasons is dangerous, not reading the, not reading the fathers. Okay, <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Certainly, if we, you know, read things on the internet or watch the news, we're probably put, putting ourselves in greater je jeopardy than reading the fathers, of course, and that does sort of put things in, in perspective. Uh, and, you know, it's like slowly drinking a poison over the course of time just by exposing ourselves to it. And uh, so, yeah, that's right. You know, I think, uh, and again, we have so many tools available to us now to help us along. Daniel, did you have another thought there? Yeah, sorry for my smart aleck comment, but um, uh, my uh, a real question. Um, I may be overthinking this, but is could this also be similar to um, like this example um, of demon casting out demon? Is there any chance it's, it just made me think of like, you know, remembrance of wrongs and how the fathers also talk about remembrance of sin kind of leading towards a hatred of sin leading towards essentially like, you know, humility or virtue of, of some way. Like, I don't know. I know that's not specifically what he's talking about, but is that like on a more personal level, maybe instead of remembrance of another person's wrongs? right? Like, or what a person did to wrong you, but even just like in a broader sense, like, could it be thought of in, in terms of repentance? I don't think that's how John is looking at it. I think he's saying that the, the demons act with such ferocity and their one desire is to lead an individual into sin by any means possible. And so they aren't necessarily cognizant of what other demons are doing or working in concert. And so if there's a demon seeking to draw an individual into fornication, as John describes here, you know, that's going to be, you know, its focus. Whereas if another is uh, seeking to lead a person into remembrance of wrongs or this deep anger, that's going to be its focus. And so what John is sort of saying, wondering out loud here is that, are they just so ferocious? Are they like wild dogs in such a way that they aren't really conscious of what is going on around them, that they're so focused on attacking the soul uh, that at times they can counteract each other. And so that's what John is sort of wondering here, you know, is the anger here so great that it counteracts the, the desire for fornication. And then, you know, he backs away from it and says, well, perhaps it's just the providence of God that, 
you know, he uses the presence of both of those demons to overcome them or to help the soul overcome them. Right, Charbel says demons are fundamentally chaotic and that's what they're seeking, uh, you know, to bring about within the soul. And uh, so often I think would counteract each other in the way described here. Okay, why don't we move on a little bit here. Let's see, we ended on uh, number seven. So number eight, remembrance of wrongs is far removed from strong natural love, but fornication easily comes near it, just as a hidden louse can sometimes be seen in a dove. So remembrance of wrongs is removed from natural love. So it's very strong and it involves very strong feelings and arouses very strong feelings toward the other. Uh, but uh, this can activate, he says, uh, fornication easily comes near it because the passions are stirred. And when the passions are stirred, one becomes vulnerable. So you could have two people who hate each other's guts than falling into the sin of fornication. Uh, you know, it's not because they love each other, but they're so driven by their passions that it leads them into a particular sinful act. It might make no rational sense to us, but the image here that he uses is a good one, a hidden louse in a dove. So you wouldn't expect to find it there, but it's hidden and it can, you know, take advantage of the you know these circumstances so anger is stirred up and then fornication will be aroused and take advantage of the moment with two people who are passionately engaged with each other you know and so something like anger sex emerges you know uh, to, for lack of better words you know it's like they hate each other's guts but then they act out still, even in the face of that. Uh, number nine, have remembrance of wrongs and spitefulness against the demons and be at constant enmity with your body. The flesh is an ungrateful and treacherous friend. The more you care for it, the more it injures you. And so if you remember, you know, this vision of the flesh is, you know, those parts of ourselves, uh, our appetites that are, though natural and God-given, are touched by sin and then can become our enemies, can lead us in, into sin and into greater sin. And so humbling the body, being at enmity with the body, fasting is often the, the way then to also humble the mind and humble these other passions, including that of, of anger. And so to be engaged in a fasting that we're, is not episodic, but involves a kind of constancy within one's spiritual life, uh, that we are constantly aware of avoiding those kinds of foods that would stir up the passion, certainly eating a lot. But I think when we eat in a heavy fashion where it affects our prayer life, where we're eating things that are expensive or uh, delicacies, sweets, 
you know, all these things that uh, sort of are satisfying on this other, not simply uh, to nourish us, but satisfying us on this emotional level as well, then we become more vulnerable in this, in this battle. And so he tells us here directly, the flesh is an ungrateful and treacherous friend. So the, the nicer you treat it, say, you know, here, have a Snickers bar, then it's going to turn, it turns, next thing you know, it turns around and bites you. Uh, uh, so you're treating it kindly, and, but in the process, you make yourself vulnerable to it, and you allow it to draw near in, in ways that will eventually draw you into greater sin. And I just had a talk with the students this past weekend on uh, to loving fasting and how important it is to move towards loving the spiritual disciplines because of what they, they bring us, what they offer us. And that all of the ascetical disciplines have been changed in their meaning. They've been redefined because of Christ and specifically because of what he says about fasting. When the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. An altogether new kind of fasting will emerge that's rooted in a desire and hunger that Christ alone can satisfy. And this is true about all of our other ascetical practices, that we have to love them and engage in them with a kind of love that is conscious of our desire of, for the heavenly bridegroom. Otherwise, they will bear no fruit for us. The ascetic life is not simply about endurance. It's not simply about discipline. It's about love. And in particular, it's about love of Christ. And so we seek to order the appetites and our desires toward God uh, because this is the thing that we long for the most. We desire that intimacy and union and communion with the one alone who can satisfy our heart's longing for love. And, uh, and so this is why we would be in this constant enmity with the body because the temptations coming to us or because of our poverty of our sin, we are tempted then to seek them as ends in themselves. See, simply seek the emotional and physical satisfaction that comes through them and not tied in a relational way toward God or towards others. Daniel. I just found the first part of it really interesting, though, too, where it says have remembrance of wrongs and spitefulness against the demons, as opposed to having remembrance of wrongs and spitefulness against people. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past about the insensitive faculty of making sure that that anger, that aggression is directed toward the demons and towards the temptations. This is where the battle is won. The moment that we redirected towards others is where we're overcome by, by the passions. Number 11. Remembrance of wrongs is an interpreter of scripture, which explains the words of the spirit allegorically in order to suit its own disposition. Let it be put to shame by the prayer of Jesus which cannot be said with it. And so, you know, our remembrance of wrongs will become the lens through which we read scripture. Uh, 
and we will read scripture and interpret it precisely in order that we can direct it towards other individuals. We will see what is being said in a specific scripture passage as perfectly fitting this person I know who is a hypocrite. And, and so we end up using that which is holy in this unholy fashion. And so he's saying that, you know, let it be put to shame by the prayer of Jesus, that if you're constantly crying out for mercy, if you really understand the poverty of your own sin, you, you interpret that scripture as applying to yourself, not directing it towards others. And uh, this, this is an incredibly uh, difficult battle. Uh, in particular for very religious people. You know, when you're rooted in the scriptures, when you know them well, or when you know the fathers well, you can say, and you know, people who study psychology fall into the same kind of thing too. All of a sudden you become, you practice this wild analysis and you're, you know, that, well, that person's obviously borderline or, you know, uh, a narcissist. And, you know, it just becomes crazy. Uh, no pun intended, but, uh, we do the same thing with the scriptures and the fathers. We say, oh, isn't that's a perfect, I know somebody who fits that image perfectly, that describes them perfectly, rather than seeing it describing ourselves or illuminating a part of our hearts that we keep hidden in darkness and that we are unwilling to see. You know, to approach the scriptures with this kind of radical vulnerability and faith means to open our minds and our hearts in such a way that we allow the light of that word to shine within our hearts, not to be, not to direct it out towards others. And this is especially important for those who have the responsibility of proclaiming the word of God, of preaching. You know, you preach first and foremost to yourself, uh, not directed towards others, you know, in your congregation, God forbid, you know, but... I'm sure it's happened. And he writes, remember that the demons make suckers and schlubs out of us all. It makes it easier to have compassion uh, on another, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, when we refrain from this and we, we see with the demons, but also when we see the trickery of the demons and how subtle they are, it does make us more compassionate towards others because we know of what we are capable of doing under their influence. Okay. That's a good one. That would be a great one to memorize. Number 10, all of them would be actually memorize the whole book, but uh, there's some, some in particular, uh, it's just to start with, and this would be a good one. Uh, Number 11, when after much struggling, you are unable to extract this thorn, you should apologize to your enemy, even if only in word. Then perhaps you may be ashamed of your longstanding insincerity towards him. And as your conscience stings like you like fire, you may feel perfect love towards him. So to humble oneself, even when the mind and the heart is saying something different. 
And it's interesting, you know, in the Eastern Rite, uh, we are coming up on what is described as Forgiveness Sunday in preparation for Lent. And the priest asks everybody in his congregation for forgiveness, and everybody turns to the people next to them and asks forgiveness for, you know, in any way that they've harmed or hurt them. And it's a striking, I think, uh, kind of, of expression of our, our willingness to acknowledge the poverty of our own sin. We would do much better to do this every weekend than shake hands uh, at the sign of peace. Uh, you know, I, th I think to be able to you know, to ask somebody, you know, forgive me, you know, for what I've done. In fact, you know, we're told to do that before receiving the Holy Eucharist in any case. And so to be practicing it within our hearts, you know, if, if there you get to the altar and remember that you've sinned against your brother, go and ask forgiveness and then come and offer your gift. And, uh, so it's a powerful thing that he's putting forward here. And again, we see how deeply rooted the fathers are in, in the scriptures. And finally, number 12. If you will, if you, I'm sorry, you will know that you have completely freed yourself of this rot. Not when you pray for the person who has offended you, nor when you exchange presents with him, nor when you invite him to your table but only when on hearing that he has fallen into spiritual or bodily misfortune, you suffer and weep for him as for yourself. The only sign that this has been uprooted from the heart is that when one acknowledges a kind of radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and others, and in Christ, that solidarity is even deeper. And so when we are able to acknowledge that to the point that we weep and embraces our own uh, in so many ways, the, the, the sufferings of others as if they belong to us, you know, we weep for, for them and we uh, feel compassion for them and, and their sufferings if they have illness as if it is our own because in reality it is this is how deep the the union and communion uh with each other has become and you know there is you know there's no other way for us to relate to another person other than to love them this is what Christ tells us in the gospel, and this is what the fathers are telling us. You know, that might be a stumbling block for us and a huge stumbling block for us on days. But, uh, but this is the teaching of the gospel, that now we have to see them as one for whom Christ shed his blood on the cross and to whom he gives his own body and blood as nourishment. And so we can only look at them through his eyes through the eyes of love. And to interpret even their sins against us in the most compassionate way, acknowledging, again, I think it was Daniel who said this, you know, or someone had commented about, you know, it bringing about a compassion when we see how 
the demons work on us and how they move us to act and think, then it makes us sympathetic towards others when we see that, that they've done great harm to us or said something really wounding, that they were brought to that point specifically by the demons that afflicted them. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. Uh, any final comments? We haven't finished this up yet, so John has a few more things to say to us. Uh, what, what more you can say, I don't know. I mean, if that was not devastating enough. Uh, but uh, so any other final comments before we close? A lot to think about there this week. And again, this, we're, we're, I'm so glad we're going to be reading this throughout Lent. We couldn't have asked for a greater blessing than that. And to be reading it as part of a group like this too. So again, thank you all for participating in this. It makes it really wonderful. Okay, why don't we close with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.